The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Friday, May 8th, 2020. Boris Johnson is facing an uprising from his own party over, this will sound familiar to you, plans to release too many people from prison. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un is praising the Chinese handling of the coronavirus even as the New York Post reports yet again that he was once filmed chatting with body doubles. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun today, we have Emily Bell here. And that is like super because she is so interesting. So, um, Ben, that was the so interesting. <laughs> oh, God, no pressure. <laughs> well, we're gonna, it's true, though. The, the heat is on. So, Kate, why don't you introduce Emily since you actually know her? Yes, totally. I have met her within the last four minutes. So, now, Emily, you are much um, better qualified I feel like we that. go back a little ways now, all things considered. <laughs> We do. In coronavirus terms, it's like we've known each other for a lifetime. Yes, exactly. Like four weeks. (laughs) 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 Um, I, yeah, no. So Emily is the uh, founding director. I actually would love to hear how this all came about at some point today, but um, is the founding director of the Tao Center uh, for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School. Um, And you came over after having, I think it was directly after having been editor-in-chief of kind of all of Guardian's kind of web presence. That's right. Um, yeah. And so uh, you have been there, I feel like, what, five years now? Longer? Ten. No, really? Yes. Oh, I had no idea it was that no, long. I know. This is like a whole other career it's turned into. It was meant to be some sabbatical in low, you know, so yeah, so maybe we can just start there because that is kind of my, I mean, I don't know how much more background I have to give about you besides like leading journal, like leading person in a leading journalism school. And before that leading person at like one of the, you know, the biggest uh, journalism sites in, uh, in the world. So, you know, um, but I am super interested to kind of hear, oh yeah, someone just asked if they're going to celebrate your decade. We should that celebrate was, your decade. Yeah, that was Ted, who um, uh, I work with sometimes at Columbia. Um, so he's very, you're very welcome, Ted, to arrange a big party. I'm looking forward to it. Can we break quarantine for it? I I'll come so. if we can break quarantine. Before we get uh, started, I have to eat crow about something. And the uh, uh, matter that I have to eat crow about just uh, magicked up into our screen. I'm not sure if he's James McGuckin or Thomas McGuckin, but uh, uh, James? I'm both. You're both. All right, well. You cut me off, I'll go the way. I'm just very glad to get on. No, 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 no. This requires an explanation from me. 
because um, faithful viewers of this show will remember when we were being aggressively Zoom bombed. And they will remember, they may remember that Kate and I took an aggressive policy towards Zoom bombers. And they may remember that I uh, boasted that I would remove Zoom bombers with, I think the witty language that I used was a shocking lack of due process. Oh, is this the guy oh. that you accidentally deleted from our thing? <laughs> exactly. Oh, you're so, such a jerk. <laughs> here, here is what happened. Um, one of the problems with behaving with a shocking lack of due process is that the innocent get fucked. And um, poor James McGuckin was trying to ask a question. And he was an innocent, uh, genuinely trying to ask a question. And he did something that um, a reasonable, normal person trying to ask a question would do, which is he clicked on the raise your hand I remember button. this actually. And I specifically I, was like, did we know that guy was, okay, whatever, bye, see you. So, <laughs> and so since the rule on in lieu of fun is you write your question in the Q and A so that we can vet it and know you're a real person, I assumed he was a Zoom bomber because Kate and I were busily deleting Zoom bombers and excluding them. And so I swept him up in the gleeful um, uh, uh, frenzy of throwing Zoom bombers off of In Lieu of Fun. And here is what I didn't know. Once you have been thrown off of In Lieu of Fun, you can't get back. Um, and that's no fun at all. Like, and that's no fun at all. And so uh, James sent me an email and I was completely mortified to get it saying, I'm not a Zoom bomber. You just irrationally threw me off the show. And I uh, searched my conscience and I determined that he was right. And I sent him an apologetic note. But then when he tried to get back on, he was blacklisted because Zoom knows that I removed him from the show. And so he tried to get back on at least once, maybe more, and was kept off and compounding injury to uh, insult to injury. And so I feel I owe James McGuckin a very sincere uh, public apology for not merely throwing him off the show and preventing him from getting, him, getting back in, but for falsely branding him a Zoom bomber. And this is a lesson to all of you about behaving with a shocking lack of Zoom, of, of due process. So uh, James McGuckin, welcome to In Lieu of Fun. You are hereby cleared of the iniquitous charge that I leveled at you. And I hope that uh, by inviting you onto the panel, I have overridden your, um, your uh, techn technological ban on joining In Lieu of Fun uh, uh, in the future. And if you ever have trouble, just send me an email and I will do this again. So welcome and uh, please accept my apologies for uh, my error. And all I want to say is I know you have an audience. I'm just a member of the audience. You can now sort of how I, I accept your apology. And by the way, I've continued to con contribute to Lawfare blog. I actually do it consistently. 
Uh, and uh, you were you a great man. What? I said you were a great man. And yeah. Make and, him say it three more times. There's a drink on there too. This is what I like about the show. Okay. Excellent. But I have nothing to contribute. I'm here to listen to you people. So uh, if you want to just, uh, do you have an audience out there too? Besides yeah, and we are, we are about to add you to it. And so anytime you want to ask a question, sir, feel free to uh, raise your hand. Believe me, I will not forget your name. Is that I a think Q &A? You're... That's Q&A, right? That, yes, you can, Q &A. You can write a question in the Q&A. You can do what you did the first time, which is raise your hand. It won't make the same mistake again. And uh, you are welcome in the audience anytime. Okay, well, let's continue. Get me into right. the group and um, I'll listen, okay? Enjoy the show. Oh, you will. I just want to say that if I had the power, I would never have misused it in this way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like someone who's never had the power. I know. <laughs> See, yeah. this is content moderation. This is Kate's thesis in action, right? I am the poor beleaguered uh, face. This is what happens employee. in moderation at scale, Ben. Mistakes yeah, right. get made. <laughs> I, you're making decisions really fast, you get one wrong. And then poor James McGuckin can't get it undone. And so he basically wrote an email to Lawfare headquarters saying, hey, what gives here? I wasn't Zoom bombing anybody. Of course, he was right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's actually a micro, like all jokes aside, it's a microcosmic example of a lot of the issues that Kate writes about. And that now Emily writes about. There you go. So indeed, it's um, welcome Emily Bell. Let's talk. I was going to say, in future, he'll have to go to the Zoom oversight board to get let back <laughs> in, and then he will have an elaborate <laughs> process of detailed appeals at uh, carried out at some of the world's leading hotels. No I doubt. recommend him as the chairman of the Zoom oversight <laughs> board because he has now experienced both sides of this, right? He's, you know, he's been victimized by uh, irrational content moderation, but he's also, uh, I think, uh, has an appreciation of the fact that it was accidental and that these things are probably pretty hard to administer in practice. Uh, I will point out that, um, uh, that we dismissed probably, what do you think, Kate? Two, 300 Zoom bombers? Like easily. I mean, we- Yeah. yeah. Wow. Like, like I spent a lot of time getting rid of people and this is the only complaint we got. So our percent ratio is, is really quite good. Yeah, you're just I, lucky he wasn't the president of Norway or something and then he'd well, be totally- also lucky, <laughs> also lucky he wasn't an asshole, you know, like, um, you know, he's, okay. a, he's a, 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 a gentleman who has actually contributed regularly and generously to lawfare. And he was, um, he was a uh, total mensch about it, raised the issue, got it addressed, but wasn't a jerk. And so I actually think, you know, it's a really good example of how at small scale, these things are manageable through people being decent. And, uh, you know, I, I hope I responded to it decently and he certainly did. Um, but once you try to scale it, it gets really hard. That's all I got. Okay. I know. 
Like I know, I know. That's actually kind of like, it's this very funny story when Instagram first started before it was acquired by Facebook. And um, I interviewed like one of the three co-founders and they would just do all of the content moderation was just like the three of them rotating through taking dick pics off of Instagram, like in succession, like every like eight hours, like they would just kind of like- yeah seems seems awesome um but like obviously is it it, like that was not feasible for very long Uh, i i have the uh i have the dubious distinction of being the person who um forced uh comments onto the guardian website before i think almost any news organization in the world took comments is that true it is true Um, and do you regret that is is that like a, a thing you reflect on with pride or do you think I, I like are you is are you like victor frankenstein about that i reflect on it daily and c- come back down to inhabit the body of victor frankenstein so it <laughs> it was but it was both um simultaneously probably you know one of the best and worst decisions uh, that i ever made it was highly naive um but at the same time you know, back in whenever it was, 2006, 2005, 2006, um, it was a very different world. So we learned an awful lot just even in the first, I remember kind of like in the first sort of like five or six weeks as we really gathered momentum and started to be popular, thinking, oh shit, you know, this is not this. <laughs> and as the, the most eminent people at The Guardian, sort of the, the line of them outside my door to complain about the assholes on our platform who quote unquote are not Guardian readers grew ever longer. Um, but it forced us to kind of confront this issue of, you know, hey, when you let people into the, to, to, to a space, it suddenly becomes their space. And, you know, if you're not kind of clear about your rules, if you don't set the tone, if you don't get your, um, the particularly difficult thing, to be honest, was uh, getting the um, journalists to kind of engage with the audience. Oh, you wanted um, that? Was that like part of the comments? Yeah. It wasn't just like you wanted it yeah. to be a dialogue. Dialogue. This is, this is how long ago it was, Kate. This is like, this is like in the kind of, you know, the rainbow filled sort of gold kind of spectacle tinted days of the internet when you kind of had about, I don't know, like a, like a million sort of a million users instead of 250 million and every and, and nothing was automated. So it kind of the idea was that you would get people to engage which incidentally, there's a piece of research out this week featured in the Washington Post, um, which is pretty interesting that says, you know, if you want fact checks to really work, you have to hit people with them immediately and you kind of have to engage with them. And I was like, I could have told you, I could have, I could literally told you that 15 years ago, <laughs> that the dialogue, that making eye contact with somebody at Speaker's Corner, like you have the hecklers, right? And they're throwing tom- tomatoes. I say tomato, you say tomato. Um, and shouting insults and that until you make eye contact with them and say, what was it you just said? Let's talk about that. So but that was that was that was tiny scale, tiny but, scale. But that's like, I mean, that's straight up like some of the cognitive psychology stuff that like I used to study and things like that, which is like if you stop and reason, like if you stop and like 
it just kind of goes back to like acknowledging people's humanity and not ignoring them. (laughs) Like, and like people just want to be acknowledged. Um, and people will have far less complaint if they just feel like they've been acknowledged. And now you'll see much more customer service, frankly, like do this exact thing, which is like, instead of just ignoring people, they're like, Oh, I can get people to go away faster. Not by ignoring them. They'll keep being the squeaky wheel for like 10 months, sending me an email every month. But if you just right. like acknowledge it and yeah. listen and then like don't do whatever they want you to do and do whatever else, like that yeah. actually, unfortunately or fortunately, like does goes a long way. But it, but it also does only work at small scale and it only works when there are good faith actors on both sides. It, it doesn't work with bad faith actors. And I think that um, back to Ben's question about <laughs> do, I, do I question, do I look into my soul and say, was that a good idea or not? What became clear over a, a, a period of time was that, you know, um, if you were uh, a woman, um, if you weren't white, uh, you attracted a very different quality of conversation um, and reaction. Uh, so at the time, I remember we had two columnists who were very uh, popular in their own way. Uh, one of whom was Charlie Brooker, who wrote, um, you know, Black Mirror and is now kind of superstar famous. And another's a very, very good female columnist. And they write really similar things. And we actually said, you know, we bet if we swap the bylines on their pieces, the reactions would completely change. So like one was like, Charlie, you're so great. You're so funny. You're so sharp. The other one was, you know, shut up, you stupid bitch. What do you know about this? I mean, it's kind of like I could have told I could have told Facebook about this long time ago <laughs> yeah so, ben, so I, ben, I, ben I actually, has like an entire like lived theory about this of like so i actually yeah. have yeah i have a lived control ex- controlled experiment in this which is my colleague susan hennessy we wrote a book together um we have worked together since susan was in law school and you know we are extremely close personally and we live kind of parallel lives professionally, right? So we are respectively, I am the editor in chief, she is the executive editor of the same publication, Lawfare, right? Um, We write together a lot. She is a regular uh, legal uh, uh, affairs uh, analyst on, on CNN. I am a regular legal affairs analyst on MSNBC. Our, uh, our, political sensibilities are very similar and we co-byline an immense amount of material together. So she, we are as similar professionally as it is possible to be. Um, there is one big difference, which is I am male and 50 and uh, look like this. And Susan is uh, female and significantly younger and quite attractive the reactions to us are so wildly different that it is um even when we say exactly the same thing and i am not somebody who comes to this from a sort of identity politics uh you know orientation at all i have been stunned at the difference in the reaction to us when we say exactly the same thing and i get a lot of hate I get a lot of nastiness. Um, my emails are nothing like what Susan gets. Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't know 
I, I think it is a, a very deep validation of some of the writing that Danielle Citrin has done, whom we had on the show. Um, I, I have been very chastened by it, to be perfectly frank. I, you know, with somebody who you can easily say, well, the circumstances are different. Mm -hmm. um, you haven't, at least somebody who's intellectually cautious has an instinct to attribute differences to circumstantial differences. I can discern no circumstantial differences here. It's as close to a controlled experiment as life gives you. The difference is unreal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I, it's like trading bylines. Right. Uh, did you ever do the trading bylines experiment? No, that would have been tantamount to dishonesty on the web. But we, but we were very clear that you could see exactly what you're describing, Ben, on a daily basis. Because, you know, columnists are not so varied in their views that they're so far apart. And every so often, you would even get the same thematic columns coming up. And if they were just written by somebody, if they, if they were, if the, you could almost predict the reaction depending on who they were written by. I mean, it's really so, quite extraordinary. So there's another effect that I've noticed, which doesn't any longer happen with Susan Hennessy, but it happens all the time with uh, Quinta Jurassic, who's my, uh, you know, younger still. And, you know, Quinta is our managing editor and probably the person with whom I write the most often I, we write a column together in the atlantic on a weekly basis and we write an immense amount of material together on lawfare um it is a matter of routine that people attribute things we have written together to me alone right and it absolutely never happens that people attribute things that we wrote together to quinta alone and I make a point of correcting it in public whenever it happens. You know, if somebody, it happened yesterday, um, something that Quinta was on, you know, uh, doesn't get, you know, gets attributed to me. I always just sort of append on Twitter and, you know, at Quint Q Jurassic. Um, but I am amazed at how, first of all, at how often it happens, which is to say every column somebody prominent will do it, but also how lopsided it is. It never happens in the other direction. Nobody ever leaves me off. And, you know, I like if, again, if it happened, if a third of the time it was, it was the other direction, you could say, well, all right, I'm more senior than Quinta is. I've kind of mentored her. I'm kind of like, I'm in some sense, maybe I'm the senior partner in the enterprise. Okay, so maybe it happens more often in that direction, but never, no. right? It doesn't happen in the other direction. And I think at some point you just have to look to like the argument that the left has been making for, you know, for a long time, which is, you know, unconscious bias is the best simplest explanation for this. And uh, it, and it, it will, it has more explanatory power than anything else I can think of to be perfectly honest. 
Yeah. Emily, can you, yeah, I'm specifically, could, do you have like, say whatever you're going to say, but I also, I'm just curious, like, have you co-authored stuff? And like, you're pretty senior, you're pretty fancy. You would be kind of, I would think the lead name on like a lot of things. Like if you've co-authored things, has that happened or? Really? I mean, you know, my, my kind of work was, so I used to be a reporter way back in the day as a reporter, then I was an editor, then I was a kind of commentator. Um, so I kind of, uh, I have experienced it less um, in terms of my byline, um, but I've experienced it a lot just in terms of my career. You know, um, I'm only in journalism because I was a failed lawyer. Uh, so <laughs> it's one of my favorite facts about you. Me too. Yeah. Yes, it's like it's like having having done a law degree at one of um, the world's most self-satisfied universities. I decided it was not. I decided it was not for me. Um, the, and, the only difference is I didn't bother to do the law degree. But yeah, I'm basically a failed lawyer. Basically, I did. I did the law degree, and then I did another law degree, and then I still didn't become a lawyer. So just like, <laughs> like just hey, really you, are, wanna, like, you are so a lawyer. You are you a lawyer. I'm afraid you are a lawyer. Being a lawyer. Don't you're tell a freaking... my, my parents completely disagree. <laughs> you're a freaking law <laughs> professor. You, you, you're like the the ultimate lawyer. Yeah. Well, but I just don't believe the rules apply to me. So that like kind of ruins I, everything. I mean, but but back to your question, Kate. I mean, something that happens to you, because I'm a lot older than you. So now I've reached my 50s. One thing which I find, which is in common with a lot of my female peers, is that underneath the seemingly calm exterior is just an immense amount of rage, like immense amount of rage about how we spent our 20s and 30s. And I was really lucky. I worked, you know, at The Guardian. It has to be like one of the best places on earth, theoretically, to work if you're a woman. Um, but it was like, you know, Back to my law degree, I was there for three years. You know, I took whatever it was, 16 courses. I didn't have a single female professor, not one. I didn't attend a single lecture by a woman. I went to work. Um, I think for the first kind of 10 or so years of my professional life, I had two female editors. Um, and, and you just became used to like, oh, this is just how it is. And now with hindsight, I'm so glad to see women in their 20s and 30s going not fucking good enough. Um, because I think, you know, kind of, I, I, I grew up with, um, I grew up sort of protesting, probably another reason I'm not a lawyer, protesting about Margaret Thatcher, whose politics I loathed and whose presence was, was kind of huge. It was sort of, but as, as, as a student in the 80s. Um, but in a way, it sort of happened at a time when I think because of the presence of Thatcher, we weren't sort of riddled with self-doubt as women about going into the workplace. It was like, oh, you can be prime minister, you can do anything, anything. Not true. Um, and so now I think sort of with hindsight, the, the, the syndrome that you're describing of were you overlooked? Um, did people kind of refer to your male colleague rather than you? Um, I think that it just became something that you accepted. And I'm a fairly strident person um, and was often told that I was fairly strident or that I talked too much in meetings and things like that. And I began to accept that about myself. And now I'm absolutely livid about it, but in a very British calm way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, so very I, British I, calm I, way. So I hear that so loudly because, you know, my... 
you know, my big breakthrough professionally was when I was 27 and I quite irrationally got hired by the Washington Post to be their legal affairs editorialist. And that happened because Meg Greenfield liked me. And Meg Greenfield, in a funny way, Meg was the, um, was the editorial page editor of the Washington Post for a very long time. She was a kind of a grand dam of American opinion journalism. And, you know, she was in some ways like a Margaret Thatcher character, not in that she was a political leader, but that she was a person whose presence in the role that she was in, she was the editorial page editor of the Washington Post for a very long time. She wrote a very famous column in Newsweek. Her presence in that role made you just understand that women were doing those things and made you, and she, I, I mean, I, it's a funny question. She, she and I worked together for such a short period of time because she died um, that it, it seems silly to call her in any sense a mentor, but you know, I've, I'm very keenly aware that my public persona is very much a creature of Meg. And, you know, I, you know, she actually said to me very bluntly one day, I want to give you a column so that you can annoy your elders. <laughs> and so I like, you know, in this way that I think a lot of young women in the life of ideas and letters and art and, uh, you know, and sort of public stuff ha have this sort of sense of having been the creation of a older male figure. I have this sense of having been sort of plucked out of obscurity by a important, like significant figure who was majestic and female and I was in awe of. And, um, and Meg hired me when she was dying and I knew she was dying when she hired me. One of our first conversations was about her cancer and her, uh, you know, her emotional experience of, of it. Um, and, but I, I do think what you're describing about Margaret Thatcher creating this space, even among people who loathed her politics, this just kind of understanding, if, if only falsely, that you could do that. I, I think Meg very much did that for me, you know, and, and created a, like, just an, a, a, a sort of normal expectation. I mean, she wasn't the only one by any means, but that, you know, the, the person who in that creepy way molded me like clay, right? Mm -hmm. Was an older female woman uh, as opposed to a male woman. But, um, you know- The, the and difference I, there is like, just like Sandra Day O'Connor kind of had this like, oh, now there's a woman on the Supreme Court. We don't have to keep worrying about hiring female lawyers to firms, hiring female law professors that like, 
that like that was kind of the thing that Emily I think was kind of likening Thatcher to like oh if you now we've got someone all the way to the top just I mean similar to Barack Obama being like okay right. now right. Barack Obama's president right. black men have equality like what else do you need Absolutely. and like no, no, no. I think to your point though I love that your personal story is that like you were mentored by a senior female woman like I think that that's a beautiful and pretty actually pretty rare. I've never been mean, mentored really by a senior female woman. I've only been mentored by senior, really wonderful kind of senior men. And like Danielle, who I like cannot think of is older than 35, even though I know she's like, yeah. like she's very senior, but she doesn't look like she's older than 35, but like, and Danielle, so. Right, but, but the and Danielle thing, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, dirty little secret is Danielle's a little bit older than 35. And, um, you know, and it's important not to, not to make, ex you know, not to sort of write the, write her role, like, because she's a personal friend, because you guys are close, Maybe. not to sort of put her in a different category. But look, no, I'm, I am totally accepting the point that Emily made in the terms that she made it, but I'm also, I, you know, and I, I accept very much that the, that the illusion that the Thatcher prime ministry right. created I, I in say, Britain was an illusion. I would say it was an illusion and she was a terrible role model. She surrounded herself mainly by men who you know, it was, again, it's kind of interesting. If you're a woman in power, you still have a different relationship with power. So it was all about the handbagging, the kind of mugging up to. And now when you see kind of, you know, female leaders like, um, you know, Angela Merkel, who's probably the most accomplished politician, certainly in kind of Europe at the moment, you know, maybe in the world, um, there's a really very different sort of quality, I think, of which is which is great to see quality of relationship of 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 women to power. But that was something else I always felt in the, the workplace, which is even in the most enlightened workplace, I was really struck by how women were expected to have a different relationship with power. So you know, you would get your job description for your promotion, and it would be you are, you have to help guide you know, da, 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 da. it wasn't sort of like, you should lead direct, etc. <clears throat> you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's just, um, and, 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 you know, Ben, to your point about sort of those, like how differently your female colleagues are, re, you know, how different the reaction is to them. I often just used to think, you know, kind of, this is like, do they know they're doing this? Does is, is this is this do they think this is what we want is this somehow acceptable it's a kind of, i mean you know hopefully we are moving beyond that world now you know there are so many accomplished women but i i worry like obama that actually the other thing it inspires is a backlash um of people who really want to make sure that it never happens again so like women at 30% rule, which is, you know, if, you, if you've done diversity, I was diversity champion, God help me, at The Guardian for about two years, but it was actually very interesting because I had to really learn um, the business case around diversity and also talk to people who were experts about really understanding the dynamics of discrimination, which, you know, I thought I was a pretty liberal person, didn't really understand them. Um, and this idea of 30% is exactly as Kate says, 
when you see enough women in the room or enough people who are not white, you think we've done it. You know, we are, <laughs> we are diverse. And that figure is nearly always 30%. You know, it's like, okay, we're done with that. And then the backlash, once it moves beyond that, you get the backlash to, we want this back to how it was before. And I, I kind of, I feel in some ways that that's actually the perpetual struggle that um, women are in. The I couldn't life. I couldn't agree more and to your point about taking on like the power I just think about power suits and about like all you know and about like having to always dress like a man and like dress in this like kind like the way that women used to dress in like the 80s is like they were kind of coming into oh. this yes the big boxiness yeah. like actually yeah. like completely erasing the fact that they're yeah. female in the room yeah. even though that like, it's obviously like the unavoidable thing in the room which is just like this so I mean I don't really want to get into super personal stories, but like my mom was a state Supreme Court judge, which is like the lowest trial court in New York, but she like was like a big deal in our small town. Yep. And then like that was, um, you know, but really interestingly, like she had, and I shouldn't like say too much, but like she was the, not a super feminist. I was the one who was like, no, no, no. And she was like, listen, you have to go along to get along. You're never going to get anywhere. And like, you're never going to do this thing if you keep being so radical and crazy type of thing. And I was kind of like, as you kind of say, you're like, I was one of the people who was like, I don't want to live. I don't want to live like that. Like, I can't, I can't do that. Like, that's not, that's not actually like achieving anything. Right. If I can put on like this entire cloak of like looking like a man and trying to talk like a man, yet still getting treated like a woman. I was like, who the hell wants to do that? Like, like, um, so it just, I think that that, I, I think that there is, um, yeah. And then like all of my, and it's funny, you say you look back and you have like kind of rage and I definitely have rage, but I actually have tons of gratitude. I happen to get, um, really lucky. My like two federal judges were just incredible human beings. Like, except, so except no, you didn't. So that's the other thing, which is women are constantly saying, hey, I was just really, I've, I've already said it. I've said I was the luckiest person to work in it. You know, you've just said I got really lucky. Why are we, do, why, you know, I know. But I also mean, like, why are we lucky? I was going to kind of be like, I never had any type of sexual harassment or anything else from any of my bosses. And I was like, that's actually not true. Some of my bosses were pretty bad, but not my, not my judges at all. Right. Um, and not like my, like academic kind of my ac academic mentors at all. But like, as you said, like, why do I think of that as luck? Right. Like, right. Are, am I not, norm. am I not fucking entitled to, a, to like, <laughs> to being like having a job in which I don't have, like, I'm not sexually harassed in some right. way or like, but this is down I, to. And I do think that this is, you know, these, these kind of the, 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 the sort of social norms and the world that um, you know you are now deeply involved in, and I've kind of always been involved in the in way, which is like how speech and media and mediation shapes that, is phenomenally interesting. I remember being, you know, really quite annoyed with Sheryl Sandberg when she brought out Lean In because I was like, you are literally causing sixteen-year-old girls to you know, kind of worry about their body image just by, you know, the standards and design of the platforms that you have set. That is so much more powerful than like telling people to pay attention and look like they're listening in a meeting. You know, it's kind of, I know that's simplifying it. Um, no, 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 no. I agree with you about lean in. 
110 percent. but we're going to take this question from christopher it's about you and like and like um but no it's about the guardian and your work with digital services so christopher do you want to go and unmute yourself the floor is yours yeah okay can you hear me yeah indeed uh, the question goes to your time uh, at the Guardian, uh, Guardian web services, what you talked about in the beginning a little bit. Yeah. Um, I would like to know, during these discussions about the comments space that you were developing for yeah. the first time in, in, in newspaper business, was there at any time the, the idea to do these comments more like moderated footnotes, right. like yeah. in, in a Talmud way, I would say, yeah. to... to after one week, look at 800 comments, somebody, and then organize the separation between original text and the comments in a different way with, yeah, like an editor. Right, right, right. Michael, it, it's a difficult, I know. But no, it's a great, it's a great question. Yeah. And, I, and so, 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 here's, so here's how the discussion went. And you have to remember, you have to forgive us because this was 15 years ago. Um, but there were a number of sites at the time, slash dot being one, which actually had a way of ranking comments even then that allowed you to see the more pertinent comments um, in the thread. I think the problem was that we started this experiment on the site that um, uh, we call comment is free, uh, which was really meant to kind of bring alive a conversation between ourselves and our readers. As I say this is very naive when you look What year was that, by the way? 2000, I think so. I think we actually launched it um, in at the beginning of 2006. And okay. I think I think, wrote for that then. But anyway, you may well have done. I'm, I can only apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Probably didn't pay for it. I much. was like living on Campbell's soup in my apartment, and you'd pay me like. 150 bucks and i'd be like that's thrilled <laughs> that's, that's good we, we, we would be like 150 bucks is not very much never mind she'll be thrilled um the uh so, so, so to, to, to answer christopher's question the reason we went for unmoderated comments was twofold one of which was um a lot of what we would you know a lot of it is is about sort of embracing the real time and the BBC, I think, sort of had gone for a post-moderation model, and it was very clunky and slow. Um, <clears throat> we wanted it to, you know, feel like people were in the room. And you can only really do that with um, post-moderation rather than pre-moderation. Uh, so it was really the idea that we wanted a conversation rather than we wanted annotation. Um, and then the second thing, which is a legal issue, is that um, once you pre-moderate comments, particularly in the market, which has some of the most kind of onerous uh, libel <laughs> laws um, in the world, um, it's that case of doing something from a legal point of view can actually be worse than doing nothing. So at the time, the law was sort of set by um, Demon versus Internet, um, uh, can't remember, anyway. The, the, the case at the time, which Kate will probably remember or Ben will remember, um, said essentially, um, if, you, if somebody flags something and you can show that you've taken every effort to take it down, then that will probably defend, you know, that you can use that as a defense if you're sued for libel. If you pre-moderate and you get it wrong, um, then, <laughs> and you don't really have the defense. And so our legal department said, you know, 
this post-moderation thing, you know, it may seem very risky, but actually it may also not be that risky. It may be the better route to go. So it was both practical, legal, but it was also a cultural thing. And we didn't know what we were stepping into. I mean, we really had no idea. We thought nobody would engage. We were like, oh, we'll be lucky to get like, you know, five comments on an article. And I think at the end of the sort of month three, we had something like 10,000 comments. And at that point we thought, well, you know, the thing that really works is having a, you know, engaged journalists and moderators who can kind of work. We learned, we learned an awful lot. Um, would we do it differently, uh, like Facebook? I think, you know, if, you was, if I was starting again in 2005, we would start with stricter rules. I think, you know, we kind of, we went with a lot of the good faith ideology of the internet that said, let people be anonymous, um, or at least, yeah, let people be anonymous because we will get better insights from people who otherwise feel they don't have a voice. I think, you know, with hindsight, you'd have actually had people register so you at least knew who they were or had some sense of who they were. Uh, I think we let, we, we opened the gates very, very wide and we shouldn't have done that. Um, and that's the lesson that the platforms are now learning, which is if you start with those gates wide open, at some point you're going to have to close them. Yeah, so that's a that's a theme that we were talking about in a significant way uh, in our conversation on uh, uh, the other day. Um, but I, I let's use that to pivot to the Tau Center. Um, how what are you doing in your current role, and what are what what is the the what are the issues that you're thinking about with respect to contemporary digital journalism it's and also how did you start like how did you transition like you said that you thought this was going to be a sabbatical almost i'm really interested <laughs> I, to i didn't really think it was it but yeah i thought it was i didn't i didn't think it would necessarily be a decade um so uh so i started in 2010 and um, I had spent, I, I'm kind of a great believer in, I was, a, I was a media and technology journalist for a long time. Um, and I was a business editor of a national newspaper before I was um, the um, editor-in-chief of Guardian, um, Guardian Unlimited as it, as it then was. And so I had spent my life reporting on media companies. And, you know, I kind of think it's, self-awareness about when you're really at the end of a phase is very, very important in your career. And I had spent 10 years being a reporter and an editor in print. And then I had spent 10 years having the best time of my life, really sort of helping build the Guardian's web presence. And at the end of that, we were in a phase which was a lot of HR. It was merging the web and the uh, newspaper. It was bringing everything under um, the control of Alan Rusbridger, who was the editor-in-chief. Um, and, you know, I'd been under, you know, his control anyway, so it wasn't that big. But it was like the end of a, it was like the end of a phase. And I remember thinking, you know, like, now might be a good time to go and not become cynical about uh, the organisation that you're with. And Sig Gisler, God bless him, who was the chair of the Pulitzer Prizes at the time, rang me up out of the blue and said, look, I'm sure you're very busy and successful at the moment, but we have this kind of new thing we're starting and we thought you be, might be interested in it, um, but I completely understand if you're not. And he sent me the details of it. And I said, I'm, I think it was that, that I, tell you, I tell you the other thing, which is that 
I didn't start the Guardians Web Presence. That was started before I joined, but I was there through from it going from a sort of a, an operation that you could put in one room to really being a sort of a global thing. And I just love the startup culture. And I was like, oh, you know, actually, I really like starting things. And I quite like starting things that are meant to transform kind of stayed institutions, <laughs> which is I'm a coward. I don't want to go out there and do it, you know, kind of with my own kind of mortgage or somebody else's money. Um, but in terms of sort of digital transformation in journalism, so, so that's really why I did it. And also my husband, who's a journalist, um, had always wanted to work outside the UK. And I had always said no. He'd, had, he'd been offered lots of postings and I've always said no. So we dragged our three kids, which was a terrible mistake. Um, I, I was, yes, you I, should have just left them there, <laughs> not brought them at all. <laughs> um, and then, and then, really, the the kind of the the agenda for us uh, for the first sort of four or five years was thinking about how, thinking about things like digital security. I have a great um, colleague called Susan McGregor, who I hired after a, a, my first year there, who looked at um, kind of things like sort of you know we we taught digital security for the first time, which hasn't been taught in the journalism school. We have a dual degree in computer science and journalism, because I'd always seen this intersection of the technology and the journalism being kind of more significant and profound probably in, than, it, than it was showing up in the professional workplace. That's one of the things we, I learned at The Guardian, which is you have to integrate um, those two worlds successfully and hopefully empowering journalism rather than diminishing it. Um, and then after about three years, uh, I became increasingly obsessed with the power of the platforms and really sort of how they intersect with um, journalism now, uh, how they're shaping um, kind of everything, but particularly the field of journalism has been one of the things, one of the things that we've studied most closely. We have a couple of big papers coming out in the next few months on that. Um, and sort of charting that, that then sort of, so, so for a couple of years, I was one of these people borrowing from the work of people like Kate, uh, saying, you know, Silicon Valley and journalism has a very weird relationship. And at some point, this is going to have very serious consequences for one set of actors or the other. Um, and people would go, oh, that's interesting, but not really, you know, if, there, were, there were a small group of us kind of saying these types of things, but nobody was really paying any attention. Then in 2016, of course, literally the thing we've been studying sort of blew up in our faces. And since then it's been just, you know, like hanging on to the harpoon in the whale <laughs> being dragged at high speed um, in thinking, what do journalists need to know? How can they operate between the crowd and the algorithm? What makes reporting strong? How on earth do you make local journalism sustainable? What's the right role for Facebook, Google, etc.? So, so my quiet um, feet up sabbatical, restful time um, has not turned out to be, I mean, it's been fascinating, but it is also, I was reflecting with a colleague the other day, completely exhausting. It's like- I, It's fun I, to start things. It's like all of the manic energy and joy and everything. Um, ben knows this, he started Lawfare. Like there's like, I've started like tons of things and like this entire kind of like this field, yep. I just kind of like went off and like was like, I'm gonna do this and, um, yeah, I think to your but, point, like, yeah. But, but I'm actually also, one of the things it's taught me though, is that I am very grateful for, and a huge fan of institutions with longevity. 
says <laughs> you know you know it is, is not something? an accident that lawfare is attached to the brookings institution exactly. uh, i will i will just say that uh ted perlmutter you have a question oh this was actually going back to your original um 2006 ventures and it was sort of a kind of a I guess a Jonathan Zittrain inspired counterfactual, which um, you had mentioned all the things about setting, you know, if, if you'd set better rules, if you'd reigned in anonymity, um, things might have, have gone better. And I was thinking more, you know, if one wants to take, you know, the, the most famous disaster case, which is the LA wicked, wikitorial uh, case. Yes. Um, you know, that just that got that got completely overrun and lasted for about four days, right? Um, but the the, the train point was that what you really needed was a core of good actors, people who sort of understood your culture, and you know, could basically would have an investment and would come to the defense of of your venture. And I'm just wondering if if you'd had you know I, mean, I don't know what the the supply of such good actors would have been, but I'm wondering if you had had more, if your journey might have been a little less rocky. I guess that's um, the question. Yeah, I think also it. I mean, I, so the other thing is, I, 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 I kind of say maybe we should have done it differently. I don't, I don't necessarily regret it because we mm -hmm. learned some incredibly, I think, important lessons, and and also it sort of opened. I mean, this sounds a ridiculous thing to say for a newspaper, but it, it really opened the world up to us in a way that it just wouldn't have done had we carried on putting out, you know, kind of dead tree type articles. So, for instance, you know, the very visceral nature of the Israel-Palestine debate um, was something that we kind of had to engage with on a daily basis and be incredibly careful about how uh, imagery was used, the language people used, the kind of, you know, really make sure that we had, uh, and, and sometimes those were futile kind of, you know, that, that you had really entrenched people. Sometimes, however, you, you would get um, incredibly eloquent, insightful threads from experts. Um, you know, this is before uh, Facebook was really, you know, kind of was really, really a thing um, before Twitter launched. You, you would get um, out of this, these real kind of uh, pearls of wisdom and engagement, which we would never have got if we just continued. To, I mean, I was absolutely convinced for a very long time that uh, it really made journalism better. Not all the writers were at all convinced about that. I was sort of convinced about it. I think the scale thing was really the, 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 the problem, which is, you know, like all platforms, we had an anticipated scale. I mean, all planning that was done uh, predicated, I mean, I, I've got documents probably kind of on, on what we thought was going to happen to the Guardian's websites, and we grotesquely underestimated audience and grotesquely overestimated revenue, which is sort of the story of publishing on the web. Um, so, so yes, we, we, we that's did. a parable of something right there. Parable, <laughs> right there. The right, I mean, like, like I'm not I'm not sure I have ever heard it articulated that succinctly or beautifully. But you have just channeled the word of God into, <laughs> uh, like you know, like, um, you know attracting audience with high value content turns out to be really easy 
yep. figuring out how to make revenue out of it is really hard. Really, really hard. And 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 you know, so so yeah, it's but it's it it's so interesting now to you know, this kind of my, I feel like my life has um, just accidentally ended up in this weird seam of how, you know, the, the profession of journalism, if it is, a, well, it's not really a profession, the craft of journalism intersects with this much broader cloth of um, information, entertainment, you know, misinformation, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and, and how that shift has taken place. I mean, I think, you know, kind of when we talk about the, you know, arcs we're at the end of another arc we're at the end of an arc where actually large corporations that owned media houses were in control generally speaking of the public sort of discourse sort of generally speaking um and that control now has shifted pretty much entirely to the platforms and i think we intellectually know that but now we're beginning to sort of emotionally feel it in some ways and i think that's been a surprise to the platforms <laughs> in the same way it's been a surprise um, and as some something of a sort of a chastening journey for the media. Could you actually kind of speaking about that in the platforms and like kind of actually you mentioned Alan, um, are you happy to, I mean, you knew him, you know him. What are your thoughts on kind of like his appointment to the oversight board? There aren't many journalists, I should Wait, say. No, you I, gotta... I think it's already one in fact, or maybe there's two, one. Oh, sorry. What did so, I have to do, Ben? No, no, go ahead. Um, um, well, so, so, uh, so first of all, um, if you wanted to pick somebody who truly understands the um, strategic and intellectual and cultural uh, kind of implications of how you handle publishing, and particularly how you handle publishing in real time and what the consequences of those decisions are. Alan is, I would say, you know, probably the best person in the world or one of the best people in the world. He's just a brilliant editor. Um, I mean, you and I, Kate, are not necessarily going to agree on this, but- No, uh, no, I mean, I, we might. Am I, am I disheartened that we're now looking at Facebook as the kind of ground zero of institution building for a new type of public speech. I'm, I'm pretty disheartened. I mean, and I think that sort of like, yes, I'm glad that people like Alan, I'm glad that people like Jamal Green, I'm glad that, you know, kind of like the, the rest of the board look amazing. They have this, uh, this, this, this fantastic collection of talents. Do I wish there was a route through policy which somehow kept this kind of out of the commercial sector. Um, God, yes. And, you know, that I think is kind of where, you know, as I say, I think personally, it's great that he's on the board. I just feel like there's a collection of really brilliant people there who possibly have slightly given up on the democratic model that, you know, dare I say it. No, you don't have to say, I mean, I actually would, I'm dying to talk about this because I kind of think that, there, there's nothing democratic about this board. There's nothing democratic about it. It's not even accountable to users except through this narrow appeals process. And it's still not accountable. Like right. they can't vote them off or like get them, get like get them gone or anything, or even like tell them what to do. Like right. in terms of like their structure, they're 
they're self-accountable. Um, I have a hope that maybe the board that that being the structure is because as you're as you correctly said, like because Facebook set it up. Yeah. But there's a tremendous amount of power that the board could potentially grow into. And maybe I'm kind of like very I could be idealistic about this, but I take your point completely. Like maybe there's this is a group of people who have decided that they're going to take this power now and then together they could try to wield it once it's truly free of Facebook and that it could be something much better. I don't know, but like basically I, I would say like a lot of people, the critique has been that I've widely seen is like, is this a fig leaf or is this something like consequential? I, I think it's I think it's a burnished shield more than a fig leaf. <laughs> I think a fig leaf, it, it's so, so yes, it has all the possibilities, but I just wonder whether it can ever fulfill that potential if it starts in the the wrong place, you know. And and that's the thing, which is just this, just tiny things. It's not even a tiny thing. What are they all paid? I'm a journalist. I'm going to ask that. That's going to be the first question. And it's like, well, we've decided not to tell people what they're. That's okay. Is. I know, and I'm going to report it soon. Oh, that's good. Excellent. It's like, should I just? read out numbers and you can like move no 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 yes yes please yeah please don't start very low because i'm gonna get in twitch like important so first of all it's really important what's the motivation here i mean alan as i say is a great journalist he's also chair of the reuters institute which has just had a five million grant check from five million dollar check 3.3 million pounds from Facebook um, mm -hmm. and a lot of, lot more money from Google and from a sort of a, an index so, so there's a bit of me that's a still a you know tech media journalist and also a researcher you know kind of running sort of um, a center that has academics working in it looking at this that says you know the kind of ability to neutralize or purchase critics um, the ability to kind of make sure that the regulatory landscape um, is, is, is full of expertise, which has in some way been touched by this project, is really pretty impressive. And, you know, um, I, like you, I hope that, yes, this is a Contmort Paul Stoll called Constitutive Moment, and they've made some good choices. Uh, and that will sort of carry on and grow. I just wish it was in a different place. And I wish- Yeah, it it's really fucked up that it's all having to come it's from one up. institutional leader. It yeah. also pretty much guarantees that this is going to be, like, do you think that any, so this is like one of my huge critiques. This is never an experiment that's gonna get replicated again. No. I don't think, at least not for a long time of trying to figure out what people want in this type of global body. Facebook has done it now. Right. Twitter will follow this model. Google will follow this model, TikTok, all of them. And so you're just going to get like, it's just going to be like a, like a standardization. Okay so, okay, so counterpoint, which is actually where I do think this is good. And this is not a negligible thing is I think it's good for Facebook. Why is it good for Facebook? Because I, you know, because one of the things is that, you know, Facebook has an engineering culture. And when I was working at The Guardian, I worked with a lot of engineers and a lot of editorial people to try and fuse the two. And the cultures are very different. And when you talk to Facebook about why aren't you making more sensible curatorial or design decisions, you know, kind of engineering culture, which, you know, is incentivized in totally different ways, just doesn't have exposure to that in the same way that an editor, when you said, you know, 
we have to design it like this, otherwise it won't scale. Literally couldn't understand it at the Guardian. It would go, but I want it like this and pictures here and it to look like that. And it's like, no, that's not gonna work. So, so, so the constant re-articulation of this is why you should do it. These are the values. This is like hiring the McKinsey of speech. These are external insultants who come along and go, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. This is why you make that decision, etc. If If they really internalize that, then they will over time change their culture to one that understands curatorial design, editorial values better and doesn't see those as being inherently adversarial. And if every single platform does that, then great. Um, does it solve the problem of what the fuck are we going to do about the, pub the public square, local journalism, you know, kind of uh, sort of how we educate people, how we talk to each other, how we rift, you know, kind of the divisions in society? No, it's not going to do any of that. And I don't believe um, that it's going to be a, I think it's, I, I think it's sort of the end, Churchillian, it is the end of the beginning in this particularly sort of messy period of how we sort out how we litigate and how we think about speech and speech laws. No, um, I think that's really well articulated. We should talk about this more. Like, I think that this is, my last year has spent, as you know, just like spending all of this time inside this goddamn place yes. and like covering this and having no one know what it was and right. no one really buy into the seriousness of the project. Right. And so I've been waiting for this day or this week for a long time. Um, and so like, I came, like, I am like in favor of the board, but that is because I have had like literally a year and a lot of insight into being able to like figure out what this could precisely be. And also I just wrote an entire paper that the last third of which is like, basically instructions to the oversight right. board about how to manipulate their founding documents to like make themselves more powerful. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, I'm completely with you. I think that everything that you said and like, you're right, that there's like some good things about the fact that they've, so, I mean, it'll just, it's, no one's perfect, right? Like there's never, like these people on the board are not perfect. Um, by far, they're not perfect. Um, but it's like, I kind of do think at the end, of, in fact, I had a lot of problems with a lot of them as I was finding them out during like, the course of this. I was like, really? Um, I don't know what I expected, but like, you know, but together as a group, I'm pretty impressed, I would say. I mean, it's a stellar group. It's a stellar group. Um, I think the intellectual exchange will be great. If I could ask one thing of them, it would be to say, you know, this kind of narrow casting of what they can do, which is basically make the hard decisions about content, sort of takedown, etc. Just, you know, it is so frustrating from a journalistic point of view, from a research point of view, from a sociological point of view, that there is so much more that we could know, experiment with, have insight into, which is locked on the servers of these companies and more tightly locked up since Cambridge Analytica because they are using the, we got caught and so we're gonna make sure that no one can catch us again by, by tightening um, and using kind of privacy as some bullshit excuse. Uh, because I think that that really would be kind of transformative. You know, I'm, I've taken, you know, you're probably the same. I've, I've taken part in so many seminars about 
covering COVID-19, misinformation, like misinformation is such a talking point of the platforms. It's like, we're fighting misinformation. It's like, can we not just move to talking about how to create an informed public <laughs> and what decisions we need to make to do that? And so I started to kind of, you know, look through papers and listen to people like Carl Bergstrom and, and Kate Starbird and the great group at UWASH um, about what works. You know, and there's a lot of work which is very kind of not their work, that's great, but there's a lot of work which is very flimsy. And this kind of idea of like what works is so under researched. And we have the kind of ability to just basically create better interventions, better journalism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you're not just going to do that by playing whack a mole. So I think that's the other thing, which is like that kind of to really be effective, you have to move away from the what should we delete who should we ban and into the how do we find out more about you know kind of the design decisions that were made and how we can all behave in a way yeah. that actually shapes and better. So i'm just positive. super hopeful that that ends up being where we go from here we have to wrap up but um actually frankly uh we have um a at least one and maybe more member and jamal green is coming on the show on monday cool yeah, so I'll you should come back chat. and be in the audience and ask him some questions. <laughs> and no, I'm serious. You really should. Please, please ask him some questions. It would be fantastic. I'm trying to get Nick Souser and John Sample to do it, who are also on the board. Um, yeah, you should, so, have them all on. you should have them all on. Yeah, have all 20. Yeah, have all 20 on the, yeah, on in lieu of show. Like they don't do MSNBC <laughs> or CNN. They just come on our like, our, our like. Our, rows of heads. I know, but exactly. Speaking, but speaking of people who want to come on, I see that James McGuckin has his hand raised. Uh, okay. And so I think we should close with a <laughs> Okay, I also have, I have from, a sign off for today though, Ben. Just FYI. Okay, so we're going to, we're going to go to James McGuckin's question. This, because, is for, this is for Emily's sign off. Yeah, exactly. And then we are going to uh, close up. What's on your mind, sir? Oh, I just want to compliment you guys because you're sort of fun with your drinks in hand, particularly uh, Kate with her very large bottle of beer. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I sort of enjoyed that. Now, coffee's coffee. Okay, I've been drinking coffee for the last 14 hours. But I do enjoy the fact that you all seem to uh, relax and uh, have a sort of like conversation thing. So James, I'm so glad you're not blocked anymore. Yes, James. <laughs> What was Ben thinking? <laughs> Come back anytime and we will. They're um, not that large. It's just perspective. Yeah, it's, like, it's larger the, the closer it gets to the camera. <laughs> it's just like sometimes it looks very close and I'm like leaning forward and it looks huge. <laughs> like this. Um, okay. All I right, have so what's our sign off today? Okay, hold on. I have to share my screen. Uh, this is for Emily. Because uh, apparently this is uh, this is the sign off for the BBC. Where's I'm recreating it for you. Hold on. This is and so then, kind. This and is then a hold on. Right, ready. <gasps> there you go, Emily. <laughs> Sounding like the national anthem. It is the national anthem. I played the national anthem. They say God save the Queen. We said let freedom ring. We totally ripped this off. <laughs>
have a shit in <laughs> Well, so do you. It's our national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I am so glad that you came on today, um, Emily. And Thank you so much for having me. This is yeah. great. This it's is been a great pleasure. And uh, we will be back tomorrow. We may or may not have a guest. It's just us Saturday, so we may be just the two of us. But I may sneak in a guest um, because. Uh, okay, but I'm tired, you know, and so it might just be good to just have us because I'm tired. All right, but I may have an opportunity <laughs> for a really for it's a really been a long cool week. guest, and so. And I've got a miss. I've got some mystery guests for for Sunday, uh, so. Join us over the weekend uh, or see you Monday. But until then, what do we say, Kate? Uh, if you can't have fun, you can at least have in lieu of fun with us. <laughs> I screwed oh, it up. <laughs> Maybe by episode 50, she'll have gotten <laughs> Sorry. If you can't have fun, in lieu, in lieu of, of fun, fun, you can still come hang out with us. There you go. Come on, guys. Bye.